on ABC New South Wales. This is The Country Hour with Amelia Bernasconi. And a very good afternoon. Thanks for your company this Thursday lunchtime. Coming up today, we'll be joined by the DPI's climatologist looking at what impact recent rain has had on the country and a little bit of the outlook as well. You probably have some thoughts there. Always love to hear from you. You can text us across the afternoon 0467 922 684. And we'll take a look as well at the latest figures on feral horse numbers in the Kosciuszko soon. Aerial shooting when conducted by skilled professionals um, is a safe, humane and effective control method for feral horses. And before one o'clock, plans for what could be among the state's largest wind farms, but not in a very windy area. We'll get into that and more across the afternoon right here on the New South Wales Country Hour. But first this afternoon, the New South Wales government has this morning announced changes to floodplain harvesting allocations in the Namoy Valley. The Water Minister Rose Jackson says to reduce the risk of over-allocation, floodplain harvesting shares in unregulated water sources in the Namoy Valley will be reduced by up to 40%. The Minister says the changes have been carefully considered and following community consultation, multiple independent expert reviews and recommendations from the 2021 Select Committee inquiry. She says the adjustment will improve water management to ensure the right balance is struck between the needs of the environment, water users throughout the river system and town water supply. That from a statement uh, putting out a media release this morning, but despite that, unfortunately, the Minister Rose Jackson was unavailable for an interview today or to join us live this afternoon. So we do hope to hear from her tomorrow. You can send your thoughts through on that and all the stories across the day, though. 0467 984. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. And Amelia Bernasconi filling in for Michael Condon today and this week. And we know there has been some recent rain that has spelt relief for some. We know it doesn't mean a lot, though, without that follow-up. But let's take a look at how the conditions across the state lie this afternoon. We are joined by Anthony Clark, New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Agriculture Climatologist. Anthony, Hello. Hi, Amelia. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. You've been busily crunching this data to take a look at uh, how we were faring after October. What were the big points to come out of that seasonal uh, conditions report? Yeah, the most significant thing is the great rainfall we had across much of New South Wales about a week ago. It's fair to say it's it's put a bit of a handbrake uh, on the drought, which was really starting to take grip across much of the state, particularly across the north and into the west of the state. The big question mark is that uh, a permanent change, are we really uh, coming out of that deeper dry situation or you know, um, uh, are we really gonna have three weeks of respite and, and go back to where we were um, around the beginning of November? Yeah, we're hearing lots of talk about green droughts. There's, you know, there's not really much goodness in any feed that is coming up. Yeah, it's pretty easy to drive around and look out your car and, and see a bit of green grass um, and say, oh, it's not drought. But anyone on, on the land knows that we do get green droughts. Um, you know, just indeed today with these uh, heatwave temperatures across the state, we start to see big uh, quality penalties in terms of feed quality for livestock. So, you know, it's, it just starts to get tighter as we go into summer. 
Absolutely. Now let's take a closer look at some of those regions. The North Coast, the Hunter, the South Coast have been the main areas that have gone first back into, in in some parts, quite intense drought. Um, Shall we start in the north of the state, the North Coast? What's the latest showing there? Any positive signs? Yeah, real mixed bag in terms of that rainfall event. Certainly parts of the region received some significant rainfall, um, you know, in the top 80% of, of records for November. Unfortunately, down around the coastal fringe, um, it was quite a bit drier. So, yeah, real mixed bag. We're still keeping a very close eye on that region. I, I wouldn't say there's enough there to really um, say they're strongly coming out of drought. Certainly people will be feeling a little bit of relief, those that did get the rainfall. Um, we come further south into the Hunter. Unfortunately, it was one of the areas in the state that, that really didn't get significant rain. Um, and we're still monitoring that um, region very closely, have some you know, long-term concerns for the duration of, of the event in that, that region at the moment. Further south in the Bega Valley, a very significant rainfall event. Obviously, we had flooding further north around Ulladulla. Certainly the amount of rain that, that did fall down there um, gives a, a bit of recharge to the hydrological system and irrigation reserves in that part of the state, which is good for them. Got to keep a good close eye on the pasture base, whether we're going to get a full pasture recovery out of that rainfall. All three areas need follow-up rain um, to, to really say they're strongly coming out of drought. Um, you know, without it, it, it's probably a false recovery. So even with that southeast, we were hearing from uh, oyster growers earlier in the week that their leases were flooded. I know that's obviously off the coast, but with even the the huge downpours that they saw in excess of 200 mils, there is still that teetering. Um, Doesn't look like they're coming out of drought particularly fast or soon. Yeah, really high intensity events like that are, are great, but they can be low in terms of effectiveness. By effectiveness, I mean the amount of production and how sustained that is we, we get out of an individual rainfall event. Certainly very high intensity events, like I said, recharged um, hydrological systems, but their agronomic effectiveness can be questioned. Anthony Clark is with us this afternoon, an agriculture climatologist climatologist, sorry, with the New South Wales DPI. Anthony, I know you've been looking at um, time gone by, but what is the outlook ahead? We're obviously in this heat wave this week. Um, El Nino still lingering, but we were hearing um, from one independent weather forecaster that next year we could move back into a La Nina pattern. Yeah, I, I, I professionally think that, um, you know, going beyond March next year is a little bit sketchy. Um, you know, the climate global climate system goes through quite a large reset, you know, in, in the southern autumn. I, I don't have a lot of put a lot of weight into any forecast you know over that autumn predictability barrier we call it um so i i I would sort of question you know any forecast but towards el nino or towards la nina at this point in time what we do know is that you know um the the current ocean state we do still have a, a an ocean el nino event at least um like we've all been experiencing, the atmosphere hasn't necessarily followed the ocean in this event as, as strongly as, as it has done in the past. That's why we, we've got um, you know, quite significant rainfall during November. Now, going forward, the official forecasts are quite unequivocal for the next you know, two to three months. Um, 
is not strong probabilities towards either wet or dry conditions from the main climate drivers and, and that means local factors come into play so we see a lot of volatility it's really important to keep checking the official forecast regularly at this time of year and just see what's coming in the next couple of weeks. Mm. Always some good advice there, Anthony. Thank you so much for joining the program this afternoon. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you. Anthony Clark is an agriculture climatologist with the New South Wales DPI at 13 past 12. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, new numbers have been released on how many wild horses are in Kosciuszko National Park. A peer-reviewed survey conducted in October found that more than 17,000 horses remain in the park, compared to more than 18,000 recorded the year before. Lots of attention has been on the wild horses in the Snowy Mountains this year, and these new numbers have also been escorted by the first use of aerial shooting as one available method to reduce those numbers. ABC Southeast reporter Adrian Reardon is here to tell us more. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So what is so significant about these numbers? I think because there's been so much attention on feral horses in the Snowy Mountains, albeit in the Australian Alps this year, people have been really wanting to know the latest numbers. So throughout this year, we've had, um, you know, calls to reintroduce aerial shooting in Kosciuszko National Park to the point that that was officially adopted back in October. We've had a Senate inquiry into the uh, management of feral horses in the Australian Alps. And there is also a New South Wales Upper House inquiry underway examining what was then the proposal to reintroduce aerial shooting. That is something that's now been adopted, but that is underway and hearings are expected in December. So there's been a lot of political attention, a lot of public attention. And throughout this year, we've been reporting on the latest numbers based on 2022 figures, which um, estimated that, you know, eight, 18,814 horses remained in the park, or more broadly as an confidence interval figure between 14,000 and 23,000. So throughout this year, we've been wanting these fresh figures and now we have them. So a survey was conducted in October and the interval figure is now between 12,934 and 22,536. So that's how many wild horses they estimate as an interval figure remain in Kosciuszko. But just to throw some more figures out there, um, there is a best estimate as a single-digit figure of 17,432. So I guess for the sake of, of keeping things simple, uh, we've been referring to this 18,000 figure for 2022, and I guess we can continue to refer to this 17,000 figure for 2023, although there are those other figures um, of estimates and intervals out there as well. Yeah, gosh, lots of numbers to digest, Adrian. But alongside the release of this survey, uh, there was also the results from the first use of aerial shooting in the park since uh, that was reintroduced. What did that find? Yeah, so uh, this survey that was conducted with the the new numbers, aerial shooting wasn't used at the time of that count, even though it was adopted in October. Um, So this count exists outside of aerial shooting being used. Um, But with those numbers released, um, the New South Wales um, Minister for Environment, Penny Sharp's office, let us know that they have begun a preliminary program of aerial shooting in Kosciuszko. Um, They found that they actually conducted it over two days in November 
and 270 horses were shot over two days. Um, they used two helicopters as part of the operation with an independent veterinarian positioned in each aircraft to oversee it. And all of all the 270 shot horses, they were all assessed by those vets from those helicopters, but 43 of those horses, well, carcasses, I should say, were also inspected by vets on the ground. And uh, that report, um, a report would be released by the lead vet- veterinarian, and which found that there were no adverse animal welfare events as part of that preliminary program. Um, and that operation was also observed and endorsed by RSPCA Australia. The concept of aerial shooting is always a divisive one. What has the response been like here? Yeah, and of course, there's a bit of history here with aerial shooting in, in Kosciuszko. Um, if you cast your mind back to the Guy Fawkes uh, incident, the infamous incidents um, uh, way back in the in the 2000s, where um, some horses were found uh, following an aerial shooting operation alive a few days later, which really prompted the backlash of, of aerial shooting towards horses in the first place. And so now that they are reintroduced, um, although the, the premise of reintroducing them was, you know, supported by a, a Senate inquiry and adopted following um, uh, what the New South Wales government uh, says based on, on their data, overwhelming uh, support from, from the public, um, it does cause division. So first up, we're, we're going to hear from Jack Goff. He's the advocacy director of the Invasive Species Council. He has been for aerial shooting. He's pleased to see that there's been a reduction, but he has no doubt that aerial shooting is continued to be needed um, in order to get the numbers down. The review by the RSPCA, uh, RSPCA and uh, two independent veterinarians has found that aerial shooting, when conducted by skilled professionals, um, is a safe, humane and effective control method for feral horses. We know that it is used routinely. We know that it is used effectively on all other invasive species that are being managed, including in Kosciuszko National Park, but it has been off the table for feral horses, this review should be an end to the discussion. We can't afford the senseless destruction of our rivers and wildlife by feral horses, and the time for talk and review should now be over, and what we need is action and impact on the ground. Uh, We need the New South Wales government now to back the National Parks Rangers to get on with the job of removing the feral horses using what we know is a safe, effective and humane method and that's aerial shooting. But now let's hear from Jan Carter. She's the president of Save the Brumbies, Inc. Um, She, um, like uh, many pro-Brumby groups, just don't trust the figures and have not trusted the process. The figures and the numbers are far overreached. It's just just not correct, okay? It is not correct. There is nowhere near the numbers that they are quoting. A lot of these reports are done on modelling. There's no way that a mare can have three foals a year. It's just impossible. We really strongly dispute those numbers. I started Save the Brumbies in 2000 after the horrific aerial slaughter of the Guy Fawkes River National Park, right? And we are absolutely back to square one in 2023. They're going in again and shooting them. Look, there is no funding for rehoming groups. We have proved, we have done trials on facility control. We have proved it's 95% successful. Government will not even listen to us about it. Jan Carter there from Save the Brumbies, Inc. And before that, we heard from Jack Goff, an advocacy director at the Invasive Species Council. And our reporter, Adrian Reardon, with us on the Country Hour. Where to next, Adrian? 
So the New South Wales government says that the survey, um, now that the funding, the findings have been released for officially for 2023 and the preliminary program has been conducted, they will move to ongoing management of wild horses in Kosciuszko National Park with aerial shooting as an authorised control method. It's one available method used um, in, in the park along with rehoming efforts, ground shooting and tranquilizing. Um, but also in the background of all of this, we are also just keeping an eye on a New South Wales Upper House inquiry led by Chair and Animal Justice Party member Emma Hurst. That inquiry was established in August this year to inquire and report on the proposed aerial shooting of Brumbies in Kosciuszko National Park. Well, it was a proposal at the time and now it's been adopted. Um, that committee has received 371 submissions that's available on Online and their hearing is due in Sydney on the 18th of December. Adrian, thank you so much for the update today. Always appreciate it. Thank you. Adrian Reardon, your ABC Southeast reporter. You can read more on that story online at the ABC News website. Well before the sun starts shining, our local team are starting their day getting ready to help you start yours. We'll make you laugh. We'll make you cry. But mostly, we'll inform you as to what's happening. Local news, national news, weather and what our community is up to. ABC Breakfast, getting you grounded for the day. Weekday mornings on ABC Radio and live on the ABC Listen app. And good to have you here with us on the Country Hour this lunchtime, 22 past 12. And there is a billion-dollar plan to build what could be one of the state's biggest wind farms on agricultural land in the Riverina. Renewable energy developer Stromlo is behind the proposal for up to 90 wind turbines set to stand more than 150 metres tall. From that, it's expected to generate 650 megawatts of electricity or enough to power 400,000 homes. Project manager James Hamilton told our reporter Emily Doak that the site just west of Narandra has been chosen because of its proximity to existing transmission lines with support from landholders. At this stage there's eight individual properties uh, and we're looking to take up roughly two or three percent of the area of the farmland that makes up those individual properties. It's very much non-irrigated cropping and grazing land so that's a key metric that Stromlo Energy are really targeting across all our projects, so stay away from really high-value, high-productivity agricultural land, uh, and that's certainly the case for Devlin's Bridge Wind Farm. So when you talk about uh, taking up a, a relatively small footprint across those eight properties, does that mean that uh, existing farming operations could continue around it? The day-to-day operation of the farm should be largely unaffected, so you're still cropping as you always used to crop, grazing as you always used to graze. The difference to a large degree is there's a road network spanning properties that join individual turbines, but the footprint of that infrastructure is is very small and proportionately the impacts are really intended to be minimised um, and, and a very little impact on uh, day-to-day farming activity. And so for the farmers, what's the benefit for them in signing up to something like this? Yeah, the commercial value is is probably front and centre for for each individual farmer. Uh, We have a lease agreement that would run for 35 years uh, with the farmer. We pay them an annual lease fee, which is based on on the number of turbines uh, that they're hosting. Uh, That's a really valuable income diversification for farmers to make farming 
uh, more viable, more sustainable. I suppose when we traditionally think of existing wind farm developments, they're usually on the on the tablelands, on uh, hills, ridges, uh, some of those windy sort of areas that we think of. Uh, what sort of, I suppose, wind resource is there in this flat country, the Riverine Plains, west of Narandra? It's not the windiest location uh, that I've ever seen proposed for a wind farm, and, and that's one of the reasons why you haven't seen a lot of wind activity proposed for the Riverina. But that's not really the critical path for a successful wind project. Wind is all about having the right location from a range of perspectives, so so community, landowners, transmission, um, and wind is, is a fairly long way down that pecking order. Uh, so we've got wind monitoring on site currently. It looks like the wind resource is viable uh, for, for a project. So, you know, we've got a green light uh, on the wind resource, but we're really focused on the other metrics that go into making a successful wind farm, and, and that's around minimising community impact, engaging with a range of stakeholders and, and making sure the project is a right-sized development um, for where it sits in the region. And so uh, what then would need to happen in terms of a planning process and what sort of a time frame are you anticipating? So the approvals process is going to run for 24 to 36 months and, th- and that's really starting now. So we're at the very beginning of that process. That's That's really why we're engaging with community and stakeholders very early on to understand how they would like to see this project delivered and how they would like to be involved. On the back of that approvals process, we'd we'd roll into a construction period, which is another 24 months. Um, And on the back of, of those two big blocks of work, we're really looking at an operational wind farm. James Hamilton is a project manager with Stromlo Energy, an Australian-owned developer. He was speaking there with RABC Riverina reporter Emily Doak. And if you are in that area, there is a community consultation meeting in Narandra next Thursday, the 14th of December. Now, staying with renewables, but we'll head to the north of the state now, where a farmer impacted by a proposed transmission corridor near Tamworth says her community is still in limbo as they wait for more details on the project. The corridor is part of the renewable... In- part of the New England Renewable Energy Zone. Dungowan cattle producer Jackie Gidley-Baird will see the line run straight through her property and she spoke with Lara Webster about her concerns. Looking out at the valley, we can see a lot of sort of river red gums winding along the creek with sort of casuarinas. All the trees are just sort of starting to come back after the drought because we lost a lot of the trees during the drought on the creek. It went dry for quite some time. Sort of looking into sort of a really sort of densely sort of populated section with sort of like five to ten acre holdings on the other side of the creek and then sort of larger places with sort of irrigation and hay flats on the other side. Surveying her farm from her front veranda and where the transmission lines will go, Jackie says it's been a stressful time. It virtually puts life on hold for you. There are some things that we wanted to do on farm around sort of reticulated water and everything Mm. that we've said no because we don't know if our farm's just about to be destroyed by the government. There are some people in the easement who've had their property listed on the market and they're virtually put in a holding pattern for who knows how long because no one's going to buy a property with this hanging over it And and, and they're obviously going to lose a huge amount of value if that happens. There are a few other families in the valley that would like to sell and go bigger. They can't. It just puts everybody on hold and puts a a whole lot of undue stress. 
Since Energy Co released the preliminary study corridor for the New England Transmission Project in June, a spokesperson says they've held 14 open information sessions for all community members to hear about the project and has undertaken more than 325 tailored landowner meetings, including 48 in Dungowan, six of which occurred in November. They've also held four specific community forums in the Dungowan and Loomba areas as recently as October. But Jackie Gidley-Baird says despite that consultation, no one can answer her questions. Ah, the communication's been absolutely terrible from the start to the finish. So my husband and I found out about the project on Facebook by zooming in on a map and seeing it go straight up through our property. I was the one that had to ring Energy Co and say, what's happening? You haven't contacted me. I haven't heard anything about it. And I've had to drive the conversation with them the whole time. It's it's really much a, a us trying to pull information and we don't get answers. We get a lot of smiles. We get a lot of, I'll get back to you on that. But we still don't have the really basic questions about what's the project timeline? What does this look like? What will be the impacts? And the really scary thing is, is when you ask them basic questions, like we're a grazing operation. If you want to cut all the fences and clear straight up the middle of our farm, how, what do we do with our herd? Does our herd go on adjustment? How are we going to get to water points? And they look at you blankly. They haven't actually considered how this will work and the impacts it will have on families and the community. What do you say to those who, who look around and say, we've got plenty of country around you. Why can't you sacrifice some of it? I think... Anybody that says that is more than I'm more than happy to take them out on farm. I do absolutely everything that I can to ensure that the way that I practice agriculture means a better future for my kids. My house and farm is powered by solar. We try and make sure that we reuse and recycle what we have. I'm very sort of aware of any chemicals or sort of anything that we're using on farm is used appropriately. It's it's just really. Um, it's really wrong that we are clearing so many tens of thousands of hectares of habitat because we're not necessarily always clearing farming land. We're also clearing native bushland. There is no thought in this current process to the impacts that this infrastructure will have. The plan is to triple renewables yes. by 2030. How do you feel about that projection? I would love that to be true in a sustainable manner. So right now, the end users, which is the cities. You fly into Sydney and you don't see any solar panels on any of the roofs. You don't see any infrastructure near where the large users are. So there's currently an aluminium factory in New South Wales that uses 20% of all production of electricity in New South Wales. Put infrastructure beside it. Let's not clear 500 kilometres of beautiful native bushland and really good ag country to put in these transmission lines to get it down there. That's Dungowan cattle farmer Jackie Gidley-Baird sharing her thoughts there with our ABC New England Northwest reporter Lara Webster. Now, in a further statement, Energy Co told the ABC it is committed to genuine community engagement and it continues to engage with locals by way of dedicated engagement teams, correspondence and information updates. The feedback and local knowledge, it says, provided to date has helped to inform Energy Co's consideration of the project and identification of opportunities to refine the preliminary study corridor as Energy Co works towards the release of the refined project corridor next year. You are listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. Amelia Bernasconi filling in today and this week. It's 28 minutes to one. Between now and one o'clock, you'll meet a young woman who was called home to the farm despite completing a degree in criminology. In the six years I've been home, I've sort of been dealt every every part of farming as on both ends of the spectrum as hard and as good as it's been. 
And also before one, we head into the shed, the paddock, taking a look at one of the oldest, largest collections of farming memorabilia in the Upper Hunter. You can always join the program at any time by texting 0467 922 684. Like Greg at Ningen, good afternoon. We were speaking earlier about the feral horse numbers in the Kosciuszko. Greg says aerial shooting of feral horses is the best way to help the survival of the park and its beautiful biodiversity. He says the RSPCA is a respected animal welfare institution and blame should be put on past governments for letting the feral horse numbers breed up to those catastrophic numbers. You can have your thoughts shared here as well, just like Greg, by texting 0467922684. But it is time to get the latest from the news team. Bridget Murphy's here. Good afternoon. Hello, Amelia. Making news this afternoon, the federal government has announced a new deal on industrial relations laws. Following negotiations with Senate Crossbench, the government agreed to split its closing loopholes bill. The first tranche will pass today and will ensure labour hire workers will be paid the same as directly hired employees doing the same work and will criminalise international wage theft. The federal opposition is in opposition to the changes, while the Greens have supported it. A police pursuit in the Hunter Valley has ended with a car crashing and bursting into flames. The car chase started just after 11 this morning with police rescue trucks and other emergency vehicles responding. The pursuit ended in the Newcastle suburb Rankin Park with the car crashing and erupting into flames. Roadblock blocks are in place near the crash site. Uh, investigations are ongoing. And finally, Amelia, the state government has announced plans to transform Rose Hill Racecourse into a new mini city in Sydney with a new metro railway station and 25,000 homes. The Australian Turf Club owns the course on the edge of the Parramatta CBD. Now, many people listening might be thinking, you know, what's that mean mm. for race meets at that site? Obviously a very key track. Um, we put that to the planning minister, Paul Scully, of what that would mean. Here's what he had to say. The Turf Club's commenced discussions with the government uh, on uh, on looking at uh, relocating Rose Hill Racecourse, which could provide homes in that area and uh, potentially a new Sydney metro station, uh, but also a once-in-a-generation opportunity to, uh, to to really have a, a good look at how racing might happen into the future in Sydney. It's not the end of racing. This is certainly about boosting racing, and, uh, and the ATC's come to the government and said, we want to have to talk to you about this. So that will go through a, uh, an unsolicited proposal uh, process with all the probity measures that are around that, uh, but an exciting once-in-generation opportunity for both for racing and for housing. New South Wales Planning Minister Paul Scully and Bridget Murphy with the headlines. Thank you. Thank you. It is 25 to 1. It's time to head off to the Bureau. Neil Fraser is there this afternoon. G'day, Neil. Yeah, how are you, Amelia? Very well, thank you. Staying indoors today, this heat wave, mm. is it intensifying yeah. or is it sort of yeah. what you were anticipating from earlier yes. this week? Well, it's certainly, if you're inland, you say, well, it's been quite hot out there and it's going to continue well into the 40s for the next week or so. There's some relief in the southern Riverina area over the, the Sunday-Monday period, but generally, yeah, low to mid-40s right through for inland parts. That hot air is going to push to the coast or past the coast on Saturday so the Hunter, Sydney, Illawarra area in particular will get temperatures uh, well into the 40s, probably mid 40s in some parts. Sea breezes along the coast might hold it down somewhat right on the coast but even if you're just a fraction of the way inland it'll be quite hot right through the coast. Subtly change coming through during Saturday afternoon and evening It'll bring some relief to the south coast, central parts of the coast, but quite a subtly busted coming through, but no relief for the inland parts. And then 
It remains fairly mild for coastal areas uh, for a few days after that with onshore winds, so keeping temperatures around the high 20s, low 30s. But the heat returns again midweek next week to the coast. But as I said, inland parts go vary between 40 and 45 degrees, so much of the area right through. Now, weather-wise, expecting some isolated thunderstorms here and there, but fairly dry generally. So there's another problem with... uh, if they start some fires. Mm. So dry lightning is a concern. Now, tomorrow especially, there's a good chance of some damaging winds from thunderstorms that develop through the southern inland areas. And uh, then on Saturday, that area sort of shifts into the southeast corner around the Monero south coast area. Fire danger is increasing, of course, and expecting probably fairly uh, a few areas getting to extreme on Saturday as well with quite fresh to strong northwesterly winds ahead of that change, so it'll affect central areas and the central west as well. As I said, some relief uh, longer, you know, longer term from Sunday right through to the middle of next week, but then the northwesterlies push back in. It's a very interesting chart at the moment. There's the tropical cyclone Jasper up in the Coral Sea, which is moving very slowly towards the Queensland coast, so there's no threat from that in the immediate next few days. And then a, a big developing trough over South Australia and they may see lots of rain Sunday, Monday through there, which is unusual for that part of the world. So the weather, there's a lot happening. We've got all the heat and then there's lots of rain in other parts of the country expected over the coming days. We're jealous. We want the rain, don't we, in New South Wales? That um, cyclone Jasper and the the fronts that are moving down there, Neil, is it likely that we could... I've seen some reports there could be an east coast low building from southeastern New South Wales. Will we... No, it's looking quite unlikely. All all the models indicating it's going to stay well north, so even far north Queensland, uh, basically anywhere north of Mackay is under threat from that tropical cyclone. But further south, and there's no, it looks like the the high is going to dominate our part of the world, which is maintaining all this heat. And that uh, slow-moving trough over South Australia as well, just moving very slowly into the far west of our state uh, early next week. So all in all... Fairly dry for most areas, but there's still the threat of the thunderstorm developing here and there. So mainly sort of central and southern parts over the coming days. Neil, always appreciate the update. We'll stay in touch with you and the team there. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Amelia. Thank you very much. Neil Fraser, meteorologist with the Bureau of Meteorology there at 22.1. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the state's Environment Protection Authority is investigating the death of a goanna and a brush turkey on the mid-north coast with the suspected poisoning linked back to a largely banned pesticide. It's known as chlorpyrifos. It's been banned for residential use for some time and is limited in a farming sense, but it is suspected to be behind the animal deaths at Safety Beach near Woolgooga. The EPA's Director of Operations is Steve Orr. EPA officers found um, bread. Um, scattered around the public reserve and that bread appeared to have been soaked in a uh, strong smelling chemical substance. Um, So our officers actually seized that material and sent it away to a laboratory for analysis. Now the analysis showed, the laboratory analysis showed that the bread had been soaked in chlorpyrifos, um, which is a a serious pesticide, it's a banned pesticide, it was banned for use in um, domestic purposes um, in 2020. Um, so that's a very serious and disturbing matter to think that native wildlife um, could have been harmed deliberately 
um, by using a, a pesticide to um, cause their death. So we are seeking the community's assistance to um, inform us of any information that may assist with our investigation. Um, and uh, if anyone has any information, they could call our uh, the EPA at 131555. And because this was obviously, so these banks were placed in a public reserve, there's concern that this could have had potential cause for, for serious injury or death to, to humans. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's um, absolutely, um, chlorpyrifos is a very um, uh, nasty pesticide. Um, it has been banned for domestic use. Um, it can be used in agricultural uses at the moment by licensed people, but um, it's certainly the levels that were uh, in the bread, found to be in the bread, were certainly able to harm um, a human and even cause death um, if there had been direct contact or ingestion of it. So, um, as I said, it is a very serious matter and um, that's why we're investigating and have referred the matter to the police as well. Steve Waller there, the Director of Operations with the New South Wales EPA. On the Country Hour, 19 minutes to one. Great to have your company along here this afternoon. Always good to share your thoughts as well. Across the afternoon, you can text 0467 Now, when Rebecca George of Ningen left her family farm to study a Bachelor of Criminology, she never thought she'd one day find herself back on the land on home soil and working full-time in ag. It was when she returned home, though, that she developed that love of farming and the passion in turn encouraged her to nominate for the Royal Agricultural Society of New South Wales Rural Achiever Awards, which she has now been named a finalist for. Ondine Slacksmith had a chat to Rebecca about her studies and subsequent venture into ag. I sort of was halfway through my degree and thought to myself, I don't really know if I'm going to use my criminology degree, but I'm definitely going to finish it and pay for it um, and have a piece of paper. And then we finished, I finished my university degree and came home over the summer of, I would say, 2015, 16. And it was right when we went into the big drought and I was watching my father and mum feed sheep daily and I thought I can't be you know, studying or sitting at home doing nothing. I wanted to help. So I sort of got involved and then fed sheep for four years and then thought, well, this is pretty good and I really like my job and I love working for my parents and being involved in my small community and I just haven't really left. So I'm still here six years on. It's just gone six years in October. Yeah, so wow, on your family farm there, can you tell me how is that, you know, being involved there in in that sort of capacity? Um, sort of just employed, um, as for, with like with mum and dad. I definitely do a lot of hands-on labour as well as a lot of paperwork. So it's a I wear a hat of all trades, um, very much so. It's it's been different. It's exciting, you know. Seeing from when I came home, we were in a drought, and then we went into COVID and a mouse plague, and then like twelve months ago, we went underwater. I feel in the six years I've been home, I've sort of been dealt every every part of farming as on both ends of the spectrum, as hard and as good as it's been. And that's been very rewarding. And I'm really lucky that I get to work alongside my parents. And, you know, I've been given inputs. Um, they often ask what my thoughts and um, theories are on certain things. And I'm really, really lucky that yeah, they let me have my two cents worth, which has been really, really good. Yeah, it certainly sounds like you've been exposed to to it all. And now this Royal Agricultural Society Award that you're a finalist for, can I ask, did you get nominated for it? How does that work? No, it's a self-nominated um, position. So I very off the cuff applied last minute thinking, oh, maybe I'll throw my hat in the ring. 
and then, you know, maybe I'll get an interview and maybe I'll get a spot. And I was lucky enough to be given an interview, which I was really excited about and I was really proud of myself that I even got an interview because there are a lot of worthy contenders and applicants that put their name into the ring and I often sometimes think I'm not, I haven't achieved as much as these other people or I'm not doing, you know, as as outstanding and stellar things as some other people. I'm just a little farmer from Western New South Wales um, and then was really lucky to be given a spot and, yeah, the phone call I didn't expect at all. I thought, you know, there's no way and, yeah, I got a phone call and was congratulated and awarded a position to attend the Royal Easter Show next year and compete as a rural achiever. The award recognises, you know, future leaders in primary industries. How are you going to act as a leader for your local community? I just hope that I can instil and demonstrate that even if you're from way out here and you are farming or you're a nurse or whatever your job is in our small community, that you can put your name down for things that are challenging or that seem like they're too far away and that I'd love to involve the future generations and the importance of, you know, having a show and the importance of agriculture in our community. And, yes, Ningen's very much a mining town and we're very lucky that we have the mines and that there's the population is good and business is, is going well. But it's also about those kids who think, oh, maybe I don't want to do that or maybe I want to do this and... If you want to be involved in ag, it's, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, there's always an opportunity and that's something I think is really important going forward into future generations. Isn't she just a breath of fresh air? Rebecca George there, she's a farmer from Ningen and also a finalist for the Royal Agricultural Society's Rural Achiever Awards. She was speaking there with our reporter Ondine Slacksmith. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Someone texting in saying we need to control the feral pigs and deer that are also doing damage. We spoke about feral horses a bit earlier. And David Weewar doesn't like the idea that wind installations are called farms. Doesn't sit well with him. You might think the same. 0467 922 684 is the number to share your thoughts with us here on the Country Hour, or it's 13 to 1. And yesterday we heard from Dr Cassandra Schaaf of Charles Sturt University. She's leading a Cool Soil Initiative, a new collaboration between six corporate partners and the university. The new project is a bit of an industry first, responding to to challenges posed by uh, for farmers by climate change. One of those six corporate partners is Kellanova, previously Kellogg's. Tina Quinn spoke to Chris Chris Stevens, rather, and he's the director of global agribusiness and agriculture with Kellanova. For a number of years, we've seen a very gradual decline in the yield of our wheat farmers in New South Wales. And when I say gradual decline, it was one or two percent a year across probably six or seven years that we've been seeing it. And because we buy a significant amount of wheat out of New South Wales, that was something that that we were quite um, concerned about. And I was at a meeting uh, with the um, Grain Growers Association and I was sitting next to Mars Pet Foods and Mars uh, approached me after the meeting and said, "Um, you know, you've sort of voiced something that we've seen as well. Would you be interested to be involved in a program that we're looking at running in New South Wales to support our wheat farmers on addressing this situation, helping them improve their soil health, get their yields going back in the right direction and therefore ensuring their long-term sustainability and climate resilience. So interestingly, we had been really keen to find a project 
here in New South Wales to support our wheat farmers. We had work going on with rice and, and corn, but nothing on, on wheat. And so we were really keen to jump uh, onto the opportunity. The report that you've recently commissioned, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we decided we wanted to get an understanding from both Australian consumers, Australian public and farmers around the announcement that the Bureau of Meteorology put out recently that we're heading into another El Nino event. It seemed that, that your average Australian was, was worried and nervous that El Nino would have a negative impact on our farmers. I think it was somewhere close to 90%, 85 to 90% of, of the consumers were worried. But interestingly, around 90% of the farmers felt that they actually were in a better position now than before to deal with the dry weather. And a lot of that was to do with practice changes that they'd implemented to help them be a little more drought tolerance. And that was some of the practices that we've been working on through the Cool Soil Initiative around minimum disturbance of the soil structure. So minimum till, direct sowing, you know, controlled traffic on farm, uh, deep liming to allow them to, uh, to grow a pulse crop, uh, looking at good cover cropping. So a lot of big corporates are really now honing in on their environmental policy and, and seeing what they can do. Is, is that something that Calanova, that, that yourselves at Calanova are doing? Have you set a, a net zero target, for instance? So we've got a, a public commitment target for 2030 of a 25% reduction in our Scope 3 emissions because we recognise, Tina, that Scope 3 is the biggest impact on our total footprint and most of that is coming from our agricultural supply chains. So we're, um, we've made a public commitment for 2030 and we are currently working through the process of looking at what we want to do for 2050. We would have a positive intent to be uh, net zero by 2050, but we're still working through the process of how we get to deliver that. Director of Global Agribusiness and Agriculture for Kellanova, Chris Stevens, speaking there with Tina Quinn. At 10 to 1 on the Country Hour, and I want to take a step back in time with you now. A 90-year-old farmer in the Hunter Valley is saying goodbye to his treasured collection of heritage farm relics, many dating back to the World War II era. It's hoped the knickknacks, tractors, tools and horse-drawn contraptions will find good homes and that history will be preserved, as Bindi Bryce reports. Dairy farmer Ken Hamilton has had a lifelong fascination for old machines and trinkets. His treasured possessions are out in the sunlight at his farm at Warkworth in the Hunter Valley. Some of it's current, some of it's way back, sort of into the 40s and the 50s. Anything from ploughs to horse-drawn mowers, pumps, bottles, hand tools, thinking toys harvesters, tractors, just about anything at the moment. Jenny Cole says her dad's collection shows the history and evolution of farming equipment. A lot of the stuff he collected was stuff that he remembered as a boy growing up. Like there's an old forking baler that you know he used to help his dad with that, you know, varying mowers and, and, and that sort of thing. So he's been in farming all his life. So it's, you know, it's been a, a lifelong thing of his. And, and he went to sort of a lot of it for some of the clearing sales. Mates would give him things or he'd see something lying in somebody's paddock. Oh, can I have that? You know, and it was just a love of, of, of old things. Why have you guys decided to sell now? Well, we can't do anything with it at the moment. And Dad's actually in a nursing home at the moment. The old dementia's caught up with him. And you know, we didn't want to see it go to scrap because we believe that 
you know, look, there's lots and lots of stuff here that people have never seen or probably will never see. So, you know, they'll all go to good homes so that that knowledge and, and heritage can be passed on. Just as an example, I had a 25-year-old person here the other day. He didn't know what a milk bottle or a fuel stove was. The hundreds of items in the collection will be auctioned this weekend and the funds will go towards aged care for Ken Hamilton. We've got uh, items from yesteryear, from uh, probably every uh, decade right back to the 1880s even, who knows, is uh, standing in front of this beautiful sunshine harvester there and like you can nearly imagine someone saddling up and getting that out of the shed and getting it working. I mean, look at look at that machine. I, I wouldn't think it'd take much more than a bit of oil to get that going. You know, there's decades and tens and tens of these uh, horse-drawn pieces of equipment, items that were made to last. Upper Hunter auctioneer Tony McTaggart believes it's one of the largest collections of farm memorabilia in the region. I guess it's the history of Australian farming, you know. The early days, um, you know, it was all, all labour-intensive. To the untrained eye, people would say, what a load of rubbish, a lot of, lot of load of junk, but uh, these items are rare as rocking horse. What kind of variety of characters are interested in this kind of stuff? They come from farm backgrounds, some. Some might come from a suburban shed. You can be standing there next to a bit of a bearded-looking character thinking that this bloke looks a bit like a vagabond and you'll be surprised to find that he's a multi-millionaire who's, who's just got a fetish for this sort of old collectible items. They just really crave after these things because, look, they could go to any shop and buy stuff today, but it's not made like this gear. The land is ready for a new owner. And Mr McTaggart says Ken Hamilton's possessions will find good homes. It'll be rebirthed. I mean, this is obviously some of the richest, most fertile country in around the uh, Singleton and Upper Hunter area. And uh, it deserves to go back into you know, full-time production. And I'm sure the new, uh, new licensee, as things rotate and move on, will get this land back into full production. This is one man's life. It'll be the end of an era for him, but in so many ways... It's the start of a new era for these items. Jenny Cole says after a lifetime spent gathering, her dad is ready to let go of his treasures. It's been difficult um, because we know how much he loved everything. And, you know, whilst, um, you know, I've sort of grown, you know, well, brother and I have both grown up with it, so we sort of know what's what. And until probably the last, you know, six or eight months, he hasn't really sort of wanted to take a lot of interest in it. But once we sort of started, and he's been out, out the shed, oh, this is this and this is this and this is something else, this goes with that, which is, I think, wow, you know, that's sort of really got to him, you know. But um, I think we're sort of coming to terms that as long as it goes to a good home, somebody else looks after it, then that's what's important. Upper Hunter Farmer Jenny Cole ending that report from Bindi Bryce. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. A review into the National Disability Insurance Scheme recommends sweeping changes Will it improve the system and contain costs? Proposed new laws on immigration detention, you'll hear from a lawyer on the likelihood of legal challenges. And the battle against buffle grass in central Australia, the highly flammable invasive species, is a big worry during the bushfire season. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. Let's head off to markets, though. Leanne Dax is at Wagga. 
Good afternoon. Today we saw a huge turnout of 42,000 lambs and almost 30,000 sheep. The competition was fierce as processors from New South Wales and Victoria fought to secure enough heavy lambs before the Christmas break. It was like a state of origin match with both states pushing the prices up. Heavy lambs stole the show, jumping 20 to $30 to record a high of 270. Most lambs over 26 kilos sold consistently from 180 to 218. Trade lambs are also in high demand topping at 194 and averaging 680 cents. However, some lambs even sold well above 700 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Store buyers are also very active, looking for lambs to grain feed. They came from local and interstate areas and paid 42 to 107. Merino lambs with feather cover sold from 61 to 133. A few thousand sheep were sold early in the sale and trade sheep were making from 42 to 66 and heavy sheep $75 to 108, with the rest of the sheep still to be sold. And hoggets, they topped at $158. Humley Andax for MLA. David Monks at Dubbo. Numbers pouring with numbers lifting by 3,000 free yarding of 6,560. It was a pretty good quality yarding with a good selection of prime heavyweight cattle along with good numbers of young cattle to suit the feeders and processors. Young cattle of trade were firm to five cents cheaper with the prime vealers selling to 282. Prime yearlings sold from 249 to 280. Lightweight feeder steers and feeder heifers were 13 cents cheaper while the heavier feeder steers were firm to three cents dearer. Feeder steers sold from 262 to 330 while feeder heifers sold from 222 to 294. Compared to the previous sales, very strong market, young cattle of the restockers were up to 60 cents cheaper, with the young steers selling to 3.95 and young heifers 3.45. Ground steers were 7 to 12 cents dearer, while the ground heifers were 2 cents cheaper. Prime ground steers sold from 2.40 to 2.69, while ground heifers sold from 2.25 to 2.58. Cows were 2 to 4 cents dearer, with the 2 and 3 scores selling from 70 to 205. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 2.15 to 2.41 to average 2.31. Heavy bull sold to 2.14. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Graham Richard at Yass. Good afternoon. Cattle numbers lifted to 1,231. The quality was good, but condition varied. The rising numbers were in the cows with 220 penned. Yearlings were also well supplied, but most went on to feed. Trade cattle were limited, with feeders purchasing the prime lots. The market sold to dearer trends. The few weaner steers reached 320 cents. Light yearling steers were purchased were pushed by the restockers and sold 35 cents dearer, 270 to 320. Medium weight feeders gained 15, reaching 320. Heavyweights gained 9, averaging 278 after reaching 312 cents. Medium weight feeder heifers lifted 10, 232 to 270. Heavyweights gained 4, 238 to 246. Grown steers lifted 20 cents, 222 to 268. The bullocks 7, 235 to 255. Heavy grown heifers were 15 cents better, 232 to 248. Cows lifted 6 on the prime heavyweights, while overconditioned cows gained 30 cents, and heavy cows sold between 208 and 239. And this has been Graham Richard. James Armitage in Armadale. Good afternoon. By far and away the largest sale for some time with agents yarding 1,700 very mixed quality cattle with very few larger lines. Yearlings well supplied along with cows, reduced processor activity while the restocker and feedlots were active. Varying trends saw the lightweight yearlings steers sell to cheaper trends, making from 254 to 372 cents. Medium and heavyweights were dearer to feed, 298 to 338 and 240 to 336 cents respectively. Light and medium weight yearling heifers were 
confirmed a slightly cheaper 228 to 288 cents for sea mussels. Well finished grown heifers to process Wadira with three and four scores 234 to 252 cents. Feeders to 270. Cheaper trends through the cow market with heavy three and four scores 185 to 218. Keeping in mind the numbers increased by 1400 head. Increased processor competition saw heavy bulls significantly dearer 201 to 248 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Armidale. Thank you, James, and our market reporters, and thank you for your company this lunchtime. It's time to head off to the newsroom at 1 o'clock. I'll catch you tomorrow.